0: Salvation is of the Lord. I don't think that Jonah was referring merely to his physical deliverance from the belly of the whale when he said that. Though that was included. The Lord in fact did deliver him from the angry waves. The Lord did extract him from that situation which was one of great danger potentially to him. And we know that when he said salvation is of the Lord, that the Lord immediately spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. It's as though the Lord was giving the signal to the fish, okay, it's okay now to let him out because he has learned the lesson that I wanted him to learn. But salvation is of the Lord is a great statement of truth. It has been quite correctly stated That there are only two religions on the earth. Oh, I know there are many different faith groups. There are many different so-called religions. But you can boil them all down to two. One is based upon the idea of free will. And the other is founded upon the idea of free grace. Free will or free grace. Obviously both of these religions, both of these ideas cannot be right. one or other is true but not both. If man is to be saved wholly or even partially by the exercise of his own will, then he is not saved only and totally and completely by God's will. but if he is saved, only by God's will, in other words by free grace, then he is not at all saved by his own will. It's quite simple really. Either a person is saved by his own power, by the use of a power which is common to all his fellow men, or God saves him. In other words, we boil it down to this, it's either salvation by free will or by free grace. It's a very important question as to whose work is salvation. Jonah was very clear. He didn't say salvation is partly of the Lord and partly of men. He didn't say salvation is 50% God's work and the other half is man's work. He didn't say salvation is 95% of the Lord and 5% of man. He said salvation is of the Lord. In other words, God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves. Salvation, and we're talking here about the salvation of the soul we're speaking about one who is redeemed from his sins and eventually taken to heaven. This is not some sort of a joint venture whereby man gets a leg up or some help from the Lord, a helping hand, if you like, from the Lord in order to be saved. But rather, as the prophet Jonah put it, and he was totally convinced of it, salvation is of the Lord. Biblical salvation is 100% the work of God. And God receives all the glory for it. And that's how it should be. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, some people might think, well, isn't that a truth that all Christians agree upon? Don't all Christians believe that salvation is of the Lord? Well, it would be nice if the answer to that was yes. And it should be yes. Because as you look at the scripture, it's abundantly clear, not just from what Jonah said, but but, but from other scriptures. For example, what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's quite clear. It's implicit in those words that salvation is of the Lord. By the way, Paul expanded on, on that in that great polemical chapter, Romans chapter 9, wonderful statement of biblical theology. Paul said there in Romans 9, verse number 16, and I quote, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And that's joined to what he said just before that. For the Lord said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, I will save those whom I choose to save. So salvation has to be of the Lord. Now it is true that every genuine Christian is going to give God all the glory for their salvation when they pray about it. I've never yet heard anyone who said they were truly saved boasting about the fact that they came to the Lord while others didn't. And talking as if it was their own work That it was their own decision that made all the difference. No, when people pray, when they speak to God about salvation, it's always with thanksgiving in their hearts and upon their lips. They're always saying, such as the little chorus says, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and so free. But, while that is true many of those same people who glorify God for their salvation when they pray about it will at the same time profess a theology which does more to exalt man in the matter of his own salvation than anything else. That's amazing to think. Just look at church history and you'll find in the annals of church history that there were those whose hymns were filled with good theology filled with good theology long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke the dungeon flamed with light my chains fell off my heart was free I rose went forth And followed the. That was not written by a man who professed to be what we call a Calvinist. But by a man who professed the opposite. It's a remarkable thing to me. Some of these men, if you'd have heard them preaching, their preaching was shot through with bad theology. And C.H. Spurgeon made some comment upon this when he said, sometimes men's devotional religion is more uniform than their theology. In other words, when they get down to pray, they become as sound as a bell theologically. But when they profess something, it is usually or sometimes mixed with bad theology. It's a, a reality, it's a sad reality, but that's how it is. But when it comes to this statement, salvation is of the Lord, it really brings up the question, are we saved by free will or by free grace? It really boils down to those two things. In other words, is salvation something that man does or is it something that God does? Is it God exercising and putting forth his free grace? Or is it a man exercising his free will in order to come to salvation? Now that doctrine of free will as opposed to that of free grace comes to the fore in the historic Arminian-Calvinism debate and controversy. If you study theology, you'll find that there are these two polar opposites, Arminianism and Calvinism. I understand that there are people who think that they're a mixture of both. I've heard men actually profess from the pulpit to be Calvinians. But when I have examined their theology, when you strip it all down, you find that they're not anything of the sort, but in actual fact, their theology is Arminian to the core. Especially when it comes to the whole issue of the atonement. Now, Arminian and Calvinist are terms that really are neither here nor there in one sense. Because they're just names that people take that belonged originally to individuals. A man called Jacobus Arminius and the other Jean or John Calvin give him his French name Jean, looks like Jean Calvin John Calvin in his theology was the polar opposite to Arminius but when you look at these two ideas Arminianism, Calvinism in reality it's a matter of free grace versus free will Now, the doctrine of salvation by free grace alone, in other words, salvation is of the Lord, is a doctrine that is ever and has ever been under assault. If we look at some of the early centuries in New Testament history, the controversy came to a head when a 5th century British monk, a man by the name of Pelagius, taught that men could provide their own salvation. Pelagius taught this doctrine, and therefore what he taught was referred to as Pelagianism. Let me just tell you, the Church of Rome is utterly Pelagian. Church of Rome, in all of its teachings and its practice, is Pelagian. But against that doctrine of Pelagius, The doctrine of salvation by grace alone was upheld by one Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo had his biblical view upheld by a church council in his day. But later church history shows us that the church as a whole, the professing Christian church, gave in to a halfway house that was known as semi-Pelagianism. In other words, it was not out-and-out Pelagian, but it was halfway there. And here's what semi-Pelagianism taught. A sinner can initiate the process of his salvation, although he is unable to complete it without the help of divine grace. Let me repeat that. A sinner can initiate, in other words, he can start, the process of his own salvation, although he is unable to complete that process without the help of divine grace. In other words, he needs the Lord to to give him a hand to get saved. Semi-Pelagianism. As I look at the Scripture, and I study the fall of man, what do I find? I find it in the Garden of Eden, When Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, they immediately ran away. They immediately hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. And someone said, quite rightly, that mankind ever since that time has been hiding from God. You do not find in your Bible this idea that man is on a quest to find God. That's a falsehood. That is a complete fallacy. That men and women are really looking for God in their lives. They're not looking for any such thing. Men and women in their sins are looking to get away from God. They want to get away from the presence of the Lord. Just as Jonah did when he was in a backslidden condition. Now at the Reformation... The Protestant reformers in general, and John Calvin in particular, sought to return the church to the teachings not only of Augustine of Hippo, but of the Apostle Paul. Because that's all Augustine was doing. He was articulating what Paul had already articulated in the scripture. But let me fast forward a little bit to the year 1610 in Holland, in the Netherlands. Followers of a Dutch university professor who had just passed away. His last name was Arminius. They formulated his teaching into five main points of doctrine. So if you want to say somebody started this argument, we know where it started. These five points of Arminianism were actually presented to the Dutch Parliament. And you can read about that in church history books. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of that. But the doctrines of grace, the system nicknamed Calvinism, with its five points, they were put together as a remonstrance, as an objection, as a direct contradiction to the teachings of Arminius. And what those five points of Calvinism did, and still do, was to merely reaffirm the biblical statement of Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. That's really what the five points of Calvinism are all about. If you want to reduce it down to one statement, the five points of Calvinism can be reduced to this. God saves sinners. That's it. God saves sinners. Of course we could take each of the points in turn and articulate those. The first point is total depravity. If you're looking for a nice flower for your garden, one of the nicest flowers that you can get is a tulip. And the five points of Calvinism may be reduced to that acronym which is TULIP. The first one, total depravity, or as it's often termed, total inability. I can prove total depravity from the scripture. And it's not just a case of people being as bad as they can be. It's people being so bad that they have rendered themselves unable to turn to God. Total inability. The second point, the U of the tulip, is unconditional election. God chose men not for anything in them but just simply because he chose to save them. You will never find any reason outside of God for election. That the purpose of God might stand. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9 God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Unconditional Election, whereby God chose out of the mass of fallen humanity a number of people to be his own chosen ones. The third letter in tulip is limited atonement. Now that's kind of an unfortunate term because those who limit the atonement are not the Calvinists but the Arminians. But when we say limited atonement you could actually say Particular redemption, and that's probably a better term, but it destroys the tulip and makes it into a tulip. But if we stick with the L, limited atonement, what are we saying? Out of the mass of fallen humanity, there is a limitation in the number of those who are saved by the atonement. It's not that there's any limit in its power. It's not that there's any limit in its efficacy. Because as one preacher put it, if the Lord had chosen to save a million worlds, the blood of Christ would have been sufficient to do it. There's no lack of power, there's no limit in the efficacy of the blood of Christ, but God by the decree of election has made a limitation as to the number of the elect. And so we can divide men into the elect and the non-elect. And then the fourth point, the eye of the tulip, is irresistible grace. And people often take issue with that and say, well, what do you mean irresistible grace? People resist the grace of God all the time. Yes, they do. And not only do they, but they must because of their nature. They will resist the grace of God. But when God sets out to save a soul, the Bible says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, and when God sets out to save a soul, he will save that soul. He doesn't save anyone against their will. What he does is he changes their will and makes them willing to receive Christ. Irresistible grace. The power of grace to bring men to Christ. And then you have the P of the tulip. The perseverance of the saints. Sometimes people will talk about the preservation of the saints. The idea is the same. It is by the grace of God that we continue. And it is by the grace of God that we will be saved. There is not one believer saved by grace who will ever be in hell. And this shall I find, for such is his mind. He will not be in glory and leave me behind. Every Christian can say that. Because of the power of grace. So the doctrines of grace, which were issued as a direct response to the five points of Arminianism, it is a system that exalts the free grace of our God. Arminianism, or if you want to call it semi-Pelagianism, because it's the same thing, if taken to its logical conclusion, it makes man, in effect, his own saviour. And that's why we object to it. Men will preach this, that God's grace can only be granted if there is a corresponding consent of man's will. In other words, people will only be saved if they will let God save them. And that exalts the free will of man to a position that God doesn't give it. A position that he actually does not have. A power that he does not possess. If you look again at the Scripture, we've already read Romans nine sixteen, where it says, It is not of him that willeth. It reminds us of, of John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verses 12 and 13. Notice that. John one twelve and 13. But as many as received him, Christ, to them gave he power, which means the right or the authority, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, notice this, which were born. Not of blood. So it's nothing to do with your nationality. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. It's not by man's free will that he has been born again. But of God. Salvation. O my soul rejoice. Salvation is of God the fact of the matter is that the doctrine of free will against that of free grace it's seen in this historic controversy between Arminianism and Calvinism and it is in effect a controversy over whether what the Bible says about the free will of man is correct or not and we know that what the Bible says about it is correct That salvation is not by the will of man. It is by the will of God. And people will say, well, whenever you come to the Lord, didn't you exercise your will in coming to Him? Yes, you did. Well, how did you do that? Because your will had the chains cut by the Spirit of God to allow you to come to Christ, to enable you to come to Christ. As the hymn writer put it, He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. But if the Lord had left us, in our sinful condition, with our fallen will, without quickening that fallen will, we would have never chosen Christ ever. Because the Bible says, "No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him." John 6:44. Let me say secondly, that the difference between these two ideas is not just one of emphasis, but one of content. See, these two ideas are mutually exclusive. Either salvation is by sovereign grace or it is by man's own efforts. One is actually the antithesis of the other. If this statement of Jonah is true, salvation is of the Lord, then the contrary statement, salvation is a combination of God and man, is false. Both can't be true. These two systems, if you want to call them Calvinism and Arminianism for the sake of convenience, these two systems can't be merged, they can't be mixed. There can be no hybrid doctrine that allows you to be what some have claimed to be a three or four point Calvinist. You can't do it. It doesn't work. There is no such thing. You might say, well, I'm a Calvinian." You're not a Calvinian Because if I were to closely scrutinize what you believe, at heart, you are really an Arminian. Why? Because these systems are incapable of being married together. In fact, I'd go further and say they can't even be engaged. There are some people who claim, I've heard this often, Calvinism stresses divine sovereignty. Arminianism stresses human responsibility. I've actually read that in theological journals. I've read that in magazines and in sermons. Calvinism stresses divine sovereignty. Arminianism stresses human responsibility. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. I want to tell you that's nonsense. That's completely false. Because a true view of the doctrines of grace stresses both of those things. I don't stress divine sovereignty and rule out completely human responsibility, nor do I preach human responsibility without emphasizing divine sovereignty. The two of these belong together. Now let me just say they're like train tracks. They run alongside one another at the same time and they never meet. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they're two separate things. But they both operate together in the purpose of God. And the true Calvinist stresses both. Now this idea, you can sort of have a marriage between Calvinism and Arminianism and you'll have the truth somewhere in the middle leads to the idea that you can believe what a Calvinist believes as long as you preach like an Arminian. And I've heard that nonsense many, many times. You should believe what a Calvinist believes, but when you're preaching, you should preach like an Arminian. And what that does is concede to Arminianism a position that doesn't belong to it. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, there's a statement I want to read. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Paul sets forth a principle here. He says, We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Now look at that last statement there. We also believe and therefore speak. In other words, what we believe is going to inform what we say. I remember laughing at a lot of statements the late Dr. Cairns used to make from the pulpit. One in particular really amused me. Knowing him as I knew him. Someone said he, he told the story that someone had come to him complaining and said, "Mr. Cairns, you, you think you're always right, don't you? You always think you're right. you're always right." And Mr. Cairns, in his own inimitable way, answered, "Well, do you think I'm preaching what I 'm preaching from the pulpit because I think it's wrong?" Good point. This is the principle Paul sets forth. I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. If I believe something, that's going to inform what I say. And if I don't believe it, why am I saying it? If I don't believe it, I'm going to say something else. So the idea that I can be a Calvinist, I can believe all these doctrines of grace, but I'm going to preach as if I'm an Arminian who believes something completely opposite. That is a falsehood. And it concedes to Arminians ground that doesn't belong to them. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that when you look at history, church history, those who have called themselves Calvinists, and some of them even at the time were not all that content with the nickname. Spurgeon used to say, well, if you want to give me that nickname, that's fine. But what I'm believing is just what the Apostle Paul taught. I'm not a follower of John Calvin. I'm a follower of the Scriptures. But for sake of argument, you call somebody a Calvinist. Some of those in history, evangelists, missionaries, preachers. Historically, let me tell you, the greatest Calvinists have been the greatest evangelists. They're the ones that have been in the vanguard of evangelism. Do you know that Calvin sent out preachers all over the place to preach the Gospel? And here's the point, whenever you get a grasp of these doctrines of grace that I have outlined tonight, or rather, as one preacher put it, when those doctrines get a grasp of you, you will have a passion and a desire to witness to those things to people, to serve the Lord in proclaiming His gospel. Yes, friends, I believe in free grace, and I preach free grace, I believe that salvation is of the Lord and I preach that salvation is of the Lord. Because it is the truth of God revealed in Scripture, not because some great theologian taught it. It's not just a question of emphasis. It's a question of truth over against error. Now let me show you some verses From the Bible. I want to let the Bible speak for itself. We've got that radio ministry in the denomination called Let the Bible Speak because we believe that's what we should let the Bible do. Let it speak. In some ways, the Bible doesn't need to be defended, it needs to be declared. Spurgeon once said in a famous message of his, If I had a lion in my possession, a a, a lion from the jungle, and I had him in a cage at my home. He said, I wouldn't need to stand in front of that cage with some sort of a weapon and try to ward off all comers. He said, you know what I would do? Open the door of the cage and let the lion loose. There's actually a book which is a biography of Spurgeon by that name. Letting the Lion Loose that's what you do with the Bible you preach the Bible and the Bible will defend itself and so I can quote the scripture Romans chapter 8 turn there Romans chapter 8 and by the way in my ministry at times I've been if you like I was going to use the word accosted that isn't the right word I have been challenged by people who have accused me of turning to Calvinist portions of the Bible. Have you ever heard anything like that in your life? I'm, I'm telling you, that's the truth. I've had someone say to me, ah, but that, that's, those, that's those verses Calvinists always turn to. I said, well, what do you want me to turn to? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. Oh, those, that's, those, that's those Calvinist texts. Yep, that's what it is. That's the Calvinist text right there. But that's an aside. In Romans chapter eight, it says in verse number thirty. But well, we'll read verse twenty-nine for the very strong connection here. For whom he did foreknow, and let me just tell you, that word does not refer merely to. A knowledge of prescience. That is the sense that God knows what's going to happen in the future. It actually has the force of loving in advance. Whom He did foreknow. That's the same thought that you have when the Lord says that the judgment, Depart from Me, I never knew you. What do you mean he never knew you? Of course he knew who they were. He knew where they came from. He knew all about them. But when he said, I never knew you, it means I never loved you with an everlasting electing love. That's the idea. Whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, I have determined beforehand the destiny of. Predestinate. To be conformed to the image of His Son, that's God's purpose, that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who are followers of His are His brethren. Now look at this. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, that is, determine the destiny of beforehand, them He also called. And that's speaking of effectual calling. That's what happens when you hear the general call of the gospel. But it's accompanied by an effectual call of the Spirit calling you to salvation. And whom He called, them He also justified. That means declared righteous. Pardoned from all of their sins and declared righteous. And notice this. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. Now when did predestination occur? In eternity past. If we could use that term. Before creation. Predestination. When are we glorified? That's eternity. Future if we want to call it that. After death you're glorified. So here we have from eternity to eternity. Predestination through glorification which is heaven. Heaven. And that which happens in between, called in time, justified in time, there's God's salvation. Who can argue with that? Salvation is God's work. Romans 9 verse 15, we've quoted already. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God will save whom he purposes to save. That's God's business. And then there's John 6.37, one of the most blessed verses in all the Bible. John 6.37, all that the Father giveth me. It's Jesus speaking. All that the Father giveth me. Who's that? Well, those that are given to him are the elect. Those that are given to him in eternity. He speaks of them in John 17 in that great prayer. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. All those who are God's elect chosen from eternity will come to Christ. That's how we know they're elect. You don't find out you're elect by looking up into the sky or consulting some other book or some notion. You know that you're one of God's elect by coming to Christ because that's what God's elect do. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise, under no circumstances, cast out. Then John 10, verse 28. Can you lose your salvation? The Arminian says you can. But the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 28. I give unto them eternal life. That's his sheep. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Never perish means never perish. Eternal life means eternal life. John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But later on in verse 26 of John 10, he says, but you believe not because you're not of my sheep. He giveth his life for the sheep. There are others he said, you're not of my sheep. Then of course of John 17, I've already quoted the one part where he speaks of thine they were and thou gavest them me. But in the same chapter he says, I pray not for the world. I pray for them. Which thou hast given me. For they are thine. Then there's a great verse in the book of Acts. Chapter 13 verse 48. Spurgeon said there were people who tried to perform verbal gymnastics with this verse. But no matter how they tried to squirm out of it, it ends up saying the same thing. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Look at this. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It doesn't say they believed and then they were ordained to eternal life. They didn't become God's elect because they believed, they believed because they were God's elect. That's the order. As many as were ordained to eternal life. Ordained by who? Ordained by the Lord. They believed. Again, this is the proof that they are his. And then in Matthew one hundred twenty one, you have that wonderful statement that the angel made to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Who are his people? He shall save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Well, they're his people whom he foreknew. They are his sheep. They are his church. They are his elect. Choose whatever name you want to. That's who it's talking about. The doctrines of grace are the revealed truth of God. And the doctrine of free will is a false doctrine and must be exposed as such. There are those who will tell us that God is sovereign, but they mean he controls everything except man's will. There's always this one exception to the sovereignty of God. It's man's will. But, as I read the Bible, I find that that's not the case. Because there was one Nebuchadnezzar who told us in Daniel 4 and verse 39... That God's sovereignty extends to everything. That he is the ruler not only in heaven, but in the armies of the earth. And there's none that can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? God is sovereign in every sphere, including man's salvation. And let me tell you that there is a world of difference between A message that presents a God who actually saves and one that says God merely enables men to save themselves. The one message is that all whom God intended to save and for whom Christ's blood was shed will be in heaven. They will be saved. The other message is that most of those whom God intended to save and for whose sins Christ was punished will end up in hell. When you think about that, which doctrine of atonement is limited? Which doctrine of atonement is a failure? The one that secures the salvation of all who are supposed to be saved by it, and the one that actually leaves lost most of those for whom it was intended to be effective. You see how important this doctrine is? That Jesus could die on the cross bearing all the shame and the sin, the punishment for every crime, and the sinners for whom he died will still go to hell and suffer the same punishment for the same crimes? Is that justice? That's not justice. And I tell you, between those two messages that I just described, there's not just a difference in emphasis, it's a different message. And it brings me to the third thing. Jonah's statement is a statement that we employ in preaching the doctrines of grace in order to exalt the Lord rather than any doctrinal system. And I'm here to tell you that while I don't object at all to the title or or the, the nickname being given to me or attributed to me, Calvinist, that's not the main thing as far as I'm concerned I'm not here to preach John Calvin I'm here to preach Christ it was Spurgeon who said that he was not ashamed to be labeled a Calvinist if that's what you wanted to do but that I believe these things because they are the revealed truth of God in his word and of course I have to say and I will always say this Strongly, many true Christians do not hold what I hold and have not held to the system that I hold to. I wish they did. But I do think there's a lot of confusion among Christians because of terms and names and so on. I've always been slightly amused by the fact that there are congregations who will just eat up what you're preaching and agree with it and even shout amen as long as you don't use certain terms, certain buzzwords. Because if you use those words, they'll be up in arms. I could preach flat out Calvinism, have done so, even in Arminian circles, and had people just loving it. Because they don't realize that what I'm preaching is not what they think I'm preaching. Because they're prejudiced against certain terms. You mentioned immediately limited atonement. Shock, horror. Election. Predestination. There are people who, because of false teaching, are prejudiced against these terms. They've been taught falsehoods. There are folks who have been taught that whom he did foreknow means that God in eternity took his telescope and looked down through the ages of time and he saw all those who were going to respond to the gospel affirmatively. All those who were going to come to Christ and because he saw the ones that would decide for Christ, he chose them as his elect. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. That's what men preach and I want to tell you, that's nonsense. That's not at all what God has done. When it says whom he did foreknow, it's nothing to do with God looking into the future and seeing what would happen. It's talking about those whom God loved before time for no other reason but that he chose to. Tell me this, when you look at the life of Abraham, and you discover from the book of Joshua that those that dwelt on the other side of the flood, the word there meaning river, it's talking about the Euphrates, those who dwelt on the other side of the flood were idolaters. That's who Abraham was. People think, well, Abraham, you know, uh, God brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees because he was a good man who was following after the Lord. No, he wasn't. He was an idolater. Abraham was a pagan. His father Terah before him. Why did God choose Abraham and bring him out? Because he chose to. The same is true of so many in the Scripture. Think about Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know what people say? You know what often is preached? Verse 9 of Genesis 6 says that Noah was a just man. He was perfect. And he was a man that walked with God. And that's why God saved him and his family from the flood. Because he was a good man in the midst of an ungodly bunch. No, that's not true. That's not what it's saying. Verse 8 comes before verse 9. Verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and then it tells you that Noah was a good man and just and upright. Why? Because that's the consequence of his being chosen of God. Not the cause. That's the consequence of the Lord bringing him out. The Lord saved Noah and his family because he chose to. Sovereign grace. There are some believers who don't see these things as yet. I like to think it's just yet. I hold out hope always for people that they will come to the knowledge of these truths. But I have to say the attitudes of some professors of Calvinism don't help the situation either. There are some really obnoxious Calvinists, let me tell you. There are some people who talk as if John Calvin was Jesus Christ. And the way that they speak is to exalt a theologian above the Bible. And sometimes in their attitudes toward those who are not of the same mind, they have a really hateful spirit. I've encountered it. I've seen it. And let me tell you, some of them who profess Calvinism, they profess Reformed doctrine. Their lives are rotten. They don't dress like Christians, they don't act like Christians, they don't look like Christians, sometimes they don't even speak like Christians, but they'll talk about this high-powered doctrine. And some of these very godly, but misled Christians who don't yet believe in the doctrines of grace, look at those people, they see their lives, they see their behavior, they see the way that they dress, they see them talking about their favorite cigars and their favorite alcoholic beverage and see them standing with their tattoos and their earrings and they think to themselves I want no part of that. Because they look at it and they say that's not Christianity. It may be Calvinism, but it's not Christianity. So there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between a lot of what is professed and a lot of what is practiced. I want to be a consistent Calvinist. I want to be somebody who follows the Bible in every area. So Spurgeon was right when he said, I don't look upon the five points of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, as barbed arrows to insert between the ribs of my theological opponents. But I look upon these five doctrines as bright lamps that help to irradiate and emanate the light of the cross. That's the right spirit. And with Spurgeon, I would say tonight, I would cheerfully give up many doctrines if I believed they were only party watchwords and were merely employed for the maintenance of a sect. But those doctrines of grace, those precious doctrines of grace against which so many contend, I could not renounce or bait a jot of them because they are the joy and rejoicing of my heart that we will always get a right grasp of God's truth it's my contention that if the doctrines of grace grip the heart of a believer their whole attitude to God and to the work of God will be changed I'm thankful that God is sovereign that God will have his way that he doeth according to his will That he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. That helps me in ministry to stay grounded. To know that whatever happens, whatever comes or goes, God's in charge. The Lord's in control. And he'll take care of the outcome. He'll take care of the results. That's not down to me. That's down to him. But I want the Lord to give me not just a love... For the doctrines of grace. But as J.C. Ryle put it. A love for the grace of the doctrines. I love teachings that magnify and exalt the Lord and his sovereign grace. Salvation is of the Lord. What a great statement that is. But it's not just enough to have the the doctrines of grace in our heads. as, As a theological system. But the grace of the doctrines in our hearts affecting the way that we live, affecting the way that we interact with other people. See, I'm so glad as a preacher that even though sometimes I trip and fall and don't say the right thing and it all comes out wrong and I think, wow, what a terrible performance that is. That the Lord is able to work in spite of me. One of the most humbling things that ever happened to me in my ministry was once, in, in my first charge at Mount Marian, where a young man stayed behind on a Sunday night after church. I'll never forget it. He spoke to me at the door going out. <clears throat> he said, Pastor, I, I would like to be saved. And I almost fell through the floor. I shouldn't have. Because when you pray for people, you shouldn't be surprised when the Lord answers your prayer. But I was. I said, well, let's go to the room at the back. We went around the back of the church to the room. They always Uh, ministered to people in for a private conference and after we talked and he said he wanted to pray and ask the Lord to save him and he did that I remember looking at him I said "I'm I'm just curious what was it in the message tonight that really gripped you what was it that caused you to think I need to be saved tonight he said well pastor it really wasn't anything in the message at all It was during the Bible reading. The Lord spoke to me from the Bible. And I thought, there it is. Just what Robert Murray McShane said. It is not your comment upon the word that saves, but the word itself. Let us never forget that. That's a good humbling experience for any preacher. It's not about you. It's about the word. May the Lord use his word. May he help us to preach this message. Salvation is of the Lord. And because it is of the Lord, if you get saved, you'll not be able to cast it aside. You'll not be lost. You'll not somewhere along the line trip and fall and you don't find your salvation any longer. It's of the Lord. The Lord saves you and the Lord keeps you. Right on into the endless ages of eternity. Praise his name.